What's up everybody? Welcome to another week of The Bible Boys. My name is James. And I'm Pip. It's super exciting to be back for another week of getting into the Bible and catching up. Uh, we had last week off, um, which was relaxing, refreshing, uh, but now we're back. So We are back. James, what have you been doing with your past like couple of weeks? Because we've been, we've been on break for college, um, but what have you been up to? Yeah, that's right. So I've been staying home. I had a wonderful Good Friday, uh, you know, holy weekend, and you know, Easter Saturday, Easter Easter Sunday. Um, although it's really called Holy Saturday. Let's let's get the rule. Let's get the wording right. I mean, you said Holy Weekend. Yes, that's quite a that's quite foreign to me. Is that is that what you is that what you call it? Good well, Friday. Holy Weekend. Is... I made up that phrase. But Holy Week is you know Easter Easter week. You got your Maundy Thursday. You've got your Good Friday, you've got your Holy Saturday, you've got your Easter Sunday, mm. so on and so forth. In any case, nice. um, that, was, that was great. And then this past week, um, you know, staying at home uh, with Viv, with Henry, hanging out. I've been playing a bunch of Elden Ring on PS5. Uh, have you heard of Elden Ring, Pip? It's just like all the other games you talk about. Elder Scroll, Scrolls of the Elders, <laughs> Rings of the Elders, Elden Scroll, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's a bit different from the other ones, but yeah, it's, it's quite a difficult game. And um, I got about 17 hours in with a character and I thought, you know what, I want to start again. And so now I'm 12 hours in with my second character. Wow. Um, but, you know, it's very fragmented game playing time, very fragmented book reading time. I, I wanted to read two books. I barely got through my the, the, the opening chapters of my first book. And so what books did you want to read? Well, I want to uh, you may remember a few years ago I started just basically finding any books I could read on what the Bible has to say about power and how that relates with pastoral ministry, power dynamics, that kind of thing. So I wanted to read this book called, um, Power and Authority, I think it's called that, but it's by a lady named Diane Langberg, and I've heard really good reviews of it. And so I've basically tried to find any book I can on power and pastoral ministry over the last few years, and when I see it, I just buy it. Mm. And so this is the, the last one that I bought, and I wanted to read it, but I got two chapters in. Very good so far, um, but I hope to keep reading. Why? What, what, what made you want to start to dig into that topic? Yeah, good question. I mean... Oh, you know what? We might not have talked about this more more deeply, um, on the pod at least. But mm. uh, yeah, so when I started my ministry apprenticeship, that was one of the big things I wanted to learn about because having been in different sort of Christian circles over the last few years, I've seen different uh, leaders uh, use their power well, but I've also seen different leaders use their power poorly. And then you hear about these public falls in terms of, you know, ministers around the world. Um, and you recognize that, uh, being a leader, um, in, in, in the family of God's people, it's, it's a, it's a weighty role. It's a, it's a big task, isn't it? And so I guess in terms of thinking about ministry training, I didn't want to take for granted that this is a big thing. Uh, that that you're taking on. And so in terms of thinking about, you know, part of the ministry apprenticeship is figuring out whether you're suitable uh, for, for a lifetime of, of paid ministry or just vocational ministry. Um, power dynamics and learning about 
how it is that you can use your power well to serve people, to, to build up rather than tear down, that was really at the forefront of my mind. And so mm. that's that was really key. I, I talked to my trainers about that. I, that. You know, they said, what are your training goals? And it was number one on my right. training goals yeah. list. Yeah. Does that make sense there? Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it's like, yeah, incredibly important topic. I think, um, you know, as like maybe a 20-something going into a ministry apprenticeship, it's sometimes hard to feel the weightiness of uh, ministry or like the office of pastor, if you want to call it that. Um, because, yeah, I, I guess like the the stuff you're doing early on um, – is, is very much like you're following other people around, trying to learn from, from other people. Um, but it is, it is the case that, like, yeah, to to be in a position where you're someone's pastor, you're shepherding them, you're trying to teach them, that's a weighty thing and people do look for, look um, to you. Yeah, I've, I've been, to be honest, quite discouraged recently just by, yeah, stories of abuse of power in churches, like obviously the big, the big one in the news of late with... Um, Hillsong, um, but oh, I mean, mainly the main one, to be honest, has been the the rise and fall of Mars Hill, mm. because I just had so I was so um, into the sermons of Mark Driscoll growing up in high school, um, and yeah, that you know, undeniably, you know, he shaped my thinking in a lot of ways, which in, in some ways I'm still trying to undo a little bit of what I can see now as some of the negative things. Mm, um, mm. But yeah, so it's a really important topic. Yeah. Um, I just found the title of the book. Um, it's called Redeeming Power. And the subtitle is Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church by Diane mm. La- Langberg. So, mm, um, yeah. for, you know, only two chapters in, really, really good book. One thing I will throw out there, just if anyone's interested um, one of the best books that I've read on sort of this topic that's been really helpful is called When Narcissism Comes to Church uh, by Chuck DeGroat. Um, really sobering book, uh, very helpful. This is a guy who's had, you know, over a thousand hours of experience counseling victims of abuse in church. And so he's well acquainted with... And, and the other thing to say is that some of these authors or some people that want to write on this right now, their goal isn't really about how you can wield power well uh, and in a biblically godly manner. Some people are writing from the standpoint of wanting to basically just tear down the church, forget Christianity, forget Jesus, forget all of this stuff. I'm more interested in people who come from it going, no, this is not what God wants for his people. This is not what mm. God wants for, um, yeah, yeah, for the family of God together. And so there've been a lot of things that I've learned along the way where I'm going, you know what? I'm so glad that I'm learning this because I hadn't really, I hadn't really picked this up um, Mm. before. Mm. So anyway, that's one of the books that I wanted to read. The second book I wanted to read was, there's this book, I just hold it up here to the camera, but I'll say what it is for the people on the pod. It's called How People Change by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. It's one of the suggested uh, readings for our uh, ministry and mission subject at college. And so I yeah. bought it and I want to read it. So Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's those those books, um Paul Tripp has another book I think uh, called uh something about relate like relationships, I think, and just like turns a mess messy you know, the messiness of yes. relationships. What did you expect? 
That's that's the name of it. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's about re- marriage, right? Is that the one you're thinking no, about? No, not, ma- oh, sorry, not marriage. Man. I think it's just about g- like general like pastoral friendships, relationships. Um, not dangerous and- calling? No, no, don't think so. <laughs> He's got a few um, of these, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I, one, one of the things I'm finding with like books that are like um, more kind of minis- ministry or, or I don't know what you'd call it, like that versus kind of the more hard biblical studies type books mm-hmm. is that like uh, you know those books more to do with like sociology relationships are, are very much like full of um anecdotes mm-hmm. and like examples and stuff and i'm kind of like i just like i appreciate the examples but i just like i want to kind of get to get to like the core of what's being said and sometimes yes. it's like and when, when a chapter starts with you know it was a bright morning and, and John, you know, sipping his coffee, and it starts with a story. That kind of frustrates me. I'm like, <laughs> you're I'm like, like, get oh. to the point. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's just me not being very patient with books. But that's all right. You know. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I was up to. You know, being at home, playing some games, trying to read, not really getting through that. What about you? What do you do? Yeah. So, um, so we had two weeks of college. The first week, I did an assignment and prepared to preach for Good Friday. And then the second week I was away with my side of the family. We went to, um, on a family holiday to Copacabana Beach in hey. Central Coast and had a really nice time, um, got some sun uh, and hanging out with family. It's something that we don't do super often uh, and like very rarely, almost never for that amount of time, five mm. days. Um, so it's just a, just a real joy just to be around family and um, yeah, catch up and hang out. Nice. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. Do you feel rested? I feel very well rested. Yeah, I'm ready to go back to college. Um, yeah, we did have, I mean, so there was a uh, a fire pit at the place we were staying, like a metal <laughs> kind of bowl, you know, you, you, you make the fire and that. We had a couple of arguments as a family over what is the best way to construct a fire. You know? <laughs> like my mum grew up on on a farm in the country, and so she has some, some experience with like you know starting fires and bonfires yes, and stuff like yes. that. But my brother, you know, he did engineering, and so he's got his own ideas, and I've got my own ideas. You know, are your ideas based on scientific fact? Maybe, they're, they're, maybe not. They're more based on TV shows and movies, I've seen. <laughs> but um, yeah. So, so yeah, you know, struggling. Do you, do you make a TP? And what is a TP? And what's the role of kindling in the fire starting process? And if you buy fire starters from Coles, is that cheating? So we had all those arguments, uh, but it was a real fun time. It was a real fun time. Yeah. Um. So I, I did Australian Army cadets for six years. And in my opinion, once you got the fire going, it was a success. Mm. Whatever you did to get the fire going and in a controlled manner, you know, if you started a bushfire, that's not a success. <laughs> but if you got the fire going, whatever you did, that was the right way to do it. <laughs> mm. Yep. Well, we got the fire going. So, um, yeah, we got there eventually. <laughs> nice. Good stuff. Now, at this point, normally we would talk about what we've been learning at college, but we've had two weeks off. So... I mean, you did an essay, I did an essay. Um, why don't I just share briefly, because I think what you're going to do with your spot might have something to do with your essay as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Great. Well, I did an essay, um, and we had to do what's called an exegetical essay on a passage, and I chose Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. I picked it because 
the very last verse, there's a section that talks about how uh, the church, which is his body, which I interpret as referring to Christ, Christ's body. And then there's a last phrase uh, that talks about um, the, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And that is the one sort of line. I mean, uh, it, in all of Ephesians, that's the one that I think I've thought the least about. And so I picked it because I wanted to, to learn more about what's going mm. on there. And so I really appreciated doing this essay. Um, it was a great exercise to do. I got to chat with a fellow college student. We went back and forth and gave each other feedback. It was great. One of the things that I want to share, though, about that, that I think I've learned about that last line, right? The, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way is... It's quite mind-blowing, Pip. And so, you know, I might be wrong, but this was the sort of the interpretation I came with. Mm-hmm. It's saying that the church, the body of Christ, um, is what completes, in one sense, Christ. In other words, um, he already fills all things in every way, um, but Christ and his church together is fullness, Mm -hmm. Um, And without the church, without the building and gathering of this people together uh, around the throne of the sun, with the sun in the heavenly places, uh, Christ is not full. Um, Now, on one level, that sounds, whoa, James, are you saying there's something deficient in Christ? What I am saying is that in God's divine plan, the building of the church in number and in maturity uh, is fundamental and crucial uh, to displaying the, the great glory of Christ in all of his fullness. And without the building of the church, the work of Christ, and in some sense, the person of Christ uh, is incomplete or lacking in some way. So this is sort of drawing on Colossians 1, when you know Paul talks about filling up in his body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We would want to say that Jesus's afflictions were perfect, right? On the cross, when he died for our redemption, perfect payment once for all, And yet there's something that's going on there in Colossians 1 where Paul talks about his own suffering um, as filling up what is lacking. I'm not going to go into Colossians 1. But what I took away from this interpretation of Ephesians 1.23 is that the building of the church is so, you know, Jew-Gentile together with Christ is absolutely crucial in Mm. magnifying who Jesus is in all of his fullness. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, yes, the, that is an interesting phrase. The fullness of him that fills all things in, in every way. Is that the, is that the right? Am yes, I that's right. It? Yeah, no, you got, you got it right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yes, the church, which is his body. Yes. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, interesting thing. If I can just there. do a little, you know, can of worms, because. We're gonna move on. This is, this is a theory that I'm working on, and I I didn't know that this verse would help me with this theory. So I've had this mm-hmm. theory for a few years now. I don't know if I'd ever write something about this, but um, you've heard the phrase "soli deo gloria," um, mm. you know, all things to the glory of God alone. This mm. idea that, I mean, in the Reformation, the 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 phrase "soli deo gloria" was this idea that justification in the end is to the glory of God alone. But "soli deo gloria." to the glory of God alone, has also become a cry for what the whole goal of, of God's operations is. So why does God do what he does? Uh, what is it that drives God throughout history? 
Why does he create? Why does he do anything? And in the end, it's to maximize his glory, right? So you, you've heard that before, Pip? Yeah, I, I, I've heard that. And I, I think I've gotten that mainly from John Piper, John Piper's mm-hmm. books. That's where I've heard that idea before. Yeah. So and I think that, um, so a few years ago, I read Jonathan Edwards' um, book, The End for Which He Created the World, which I think very compellingly shows that the glory of God is the telos or the end or the purpose of God's actions, God's creation. Uh, And then a few years later, I read a book by Andrew Moody um, called In the Light of the Sun, uh, which I have right here, actually. I also have the Edwards book. But he makes this case that we need to understand um, that God the Father does all things out of love for the Son. Um, And so I think you can combine those things together in saying that you know, the father loves the son, the son loves the father. Um, this inter-Trinitarian love results in glory, right? And so you could say that, why does God do all things? It's for love and it's for glory. And there's a way in which you can fit those concepts together. But here's my theory. The building of the church is also up there as well. That God does all things for the building or the gathering of his people mm. in his presence, the church. And so this verse, Ephesians 1.23, I think lends some weight to that idea as well, that, that God does all things for the church, um, maximizing the fullness of his son. Um, maximizing is probably the wrong word. But anyway, my point is that I think, and I might want to write on this one day, that God does all things for his glory, for love, and for the building of the church. And those three things are not different in the sense of they're conflicting, but they all fit together. Mm, yeah, I think there's there's a whole heap more to dig in there. Uh, I think it's uh, you know if I'm you know playing devil's advocate, um, you know the idea of God working for His glory. There's still something a little bit arbitrary about that, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's like if I'm if I'm pondering the meaning of life and why does God do anything? Mm. Why does God need to do anything? Um. Yes, the creation of uh, you know people to be his church, to and to display his love and power to creation, things that he creates. It's still a little bit um, abstract. Mm, mm. The you know why is he doing? It's it's a little bit bizarre. If I'm if I'm going to be a hard kind of devil's advocate, I'd say it still seems kind of meaning like you know where's the meaning in it. Like, what's the root of it? Can we articulate it a bit better than for his glory? Mm. Um, even the word glory, you know, is just such a packed word. Um, and so to kind of summarize, if you're, trying to, if you're trying to explain something clearly, to use such a packed word like that, I think sometimes adds more confusion. I, I really felt that when reading John Piper, when he was ex- trying to explain, like, you know, the God's... God's desire is that he would be glorified and that is for the good of people. It's it's not like megalomania. It's it's actually like the ultimate display of his love for his people. I'm not exactly tracking with John Piper there. Like may, <laughs> maybe I'm just not getting it, but I, I think like, I don't know. I do find sometimes with John Piper you read and he, 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 he you know, has such beautiful ways of expressing, express things. It's hard not to be like, Oh, spot on! Yeah. I nailed it. <laughs> but really, when you when you sit back and you think about it, it's like, hold on, what are you actually 
like let's try and flesh it let, let, let's try and flesh it out a bit yes, like in simple yes. terms you know well maybe next week i can share a bit about my understanding of glory then and we can That'd continue this conversation because this yeah. whole theory this like you know glory love building of the church i've been sitting on this for a year and a half and i think i'll keep sitting on it until i write something about it but let's talk about glory next week yeah that'd be great i'd love that that brings us to you and your spot pip 19 minutes in 20 minutes in what's our spot That's for right. today? there's been plenty of bibles so far we've talked a lot about bible which has been great um <laughs> But what I want to talk about today is, um, I guess, I struggle to come up with a title for this, but I guess it's about uh, letting the Old Testament have its say. Um, Mm. Specifically, letting Old Testament narrative have its say. Um, So you might have come across this already. Um, You probably have, but like um, there are... There are different approaches to scripture, different ways that we can read scripture. And at Moore College, the kind of three big like approaches that we're encouraged to kind of have as we come to scripture is um, uh, reading, reading the Bible as um, history, um, reading the Bible as theology, and reading the Bible as literature. So I guess if you read the Bible as history... Um, you're kind of lo- you're looking at the text and you're wondering what does this tell me about the past? What does this tell me about what actually what has actually happened in the past? Um, when you're reading the Bible as theology, you're asking questions like what does this text show me about what God is like, who God is like, um, and what humans are like, and the interplay between humans and God and our relationship to God. Um, when you're reading the Bible as narrative, and that's kind of what I want to hone in on. When you're reading the Bible as narrative. The question is more, um, uh, what does the what is the author saying through the way that they're writing, both the like the genre, but even like deeper than uh, even more specific than genre through particular techniques or particular um, uh, you know genre forms or particular um, you know archetypes or metaphors or, or parallels or um, like, what is the author trying to communicate, paying special attention to how they're communicating? And I think um, when we when we realize, so I've been reading a couple of books kind of around this topic. Um, one book is by a guy named Robert Alter, which is called the The Art of Biblical Narrative, um, and he kind of he kind of talks about how um, we need to understand. Old Testament narrative as like as storytelling, as craftsmanship, as kind of this um, uh, skillful writing where where writers are not just writing history, they're not just writing theology, but they're writing stories um, in a way to communicate what they're trying to communicate, and they do it skillfully using narrative um, techniques, which are like actually quite masterful. And when we realize that. Um, it kind of opens up a bit of the Bible for us. I just want to read a quote that comes from the la- the very end of his book where he says, um, Religious tradition has by and large encouraged us to take the Bible seriously rather than to enjoy it. But the paradoxical truth of the matter may well be that by learning to enjoy the biblical stories more fully as stories we shall also come to see more clearly what they mean to tell us about God, man, and the perilously momentous realm of history. And so what he's saying is like, 
as approaching the Bible as narrative actually helps us to approach it as history and theology at the same time. Um, uh, and so we'll, I'll just want to share like uh, one example of this. Um, so for example, um, Genesis 3, the serpent comes up and tempts um, Eve to disobey God in Genesis 3. Now, if we're approaching the Bible as history, and a lot of kind of modern, secular, Western ways of thinking like have, have um, I guess, really punched Genesis 1 to, 1 to 3 as like a punching bag saying, how can this be true? How can this be true? What a ridiculous story. How can this be true? So if we approach it as, as history and we ask uh, what actually happened in the past, um, if we only have that approach, we really miss the point of Genesis 3 here. Now, okay, so so one way to bypass that is to just go to the question of theology, the serpent. Uh, what does the serpent show us about God? Okay, God has an adversary, the devil, Satan. Satan is the one who tempts human beings uh, to disobey God. Okay, that's a theological kind of understanding of what's happening here. Um, but can we can we have like a... A question of why why does the author choose to communicate in this way? And what sort of questions flow from that? Why use a snake? Why use a serpent to represent Satan here? Why that animal? Why not other animals? Um, what was the author, if, it, if it's Moses, say, what is Moses trying to communicate to his original audience? Let's say that they're, they're Israelites. And then you think, okay, so asking literary questions can take us to some interesting places. Now, here's a theory on this question that I've been thinking about. Why does, why does Moses choose to write about a snake in Genesis 3? Could it be that he's writing to Israelites who have just suffered a really harrowing experience with snakes in the wilderness in Numbers 21 and 22? He's speaking to that audience and saying, look, this is the animal that for you represents evil, represents um, weight, like taking you astray, represents death. Um, you know, so let me, let me just read some verses from Numbers 21 where he says, um, Then the, uh, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So asking these kind of literary questions of, okay, why is the author using this as a potential metaphor or a, um, uh, you know, a, a symbol for Satan um, who brings death and who causes disobedience? Well, maybe it's related to how the Israelites, the original audience, saw snakes in their culture, saw snakes in their own experience, possibly. And so asking those kind of um, narrative questions, where else does this word come up? Where else does this animal appear? How else has the author used this motif? Helps us maybe dig into the passage a bit more and understand what it would have meant and felt like for the original audience. Um, potentially, potentially. But I think I, what I want to illustrate there is that asking those literary questions, not just the historical and the theological questions, Asking the literary questions helps us get at the history and the theology a bit more. Mm. Um, 
there's another thing I want to share. I've also been I've been reading this book. It's called From Exegesis to Exposition by um, Robert uh, Chrisom. And it's a practical guide to using biblical Hebrew. So in, in studying Hebrew, you know, we get books on like how to actually use what we learn about the language when it comes to preparing to preach and reading the Bible um, responsibly. And there's this bit there's this bit towards the end about letting Old Testament narratives have their say and not imposing our um, kind of you know our will on the on the passage. So I just want to read um, a section, probably about a minute of of excerpt from this book, and it's quite interesting. Um, he says this. He says um, preachers often use Old Testament stories simply for their il- uh, um, illustration value. In this approach, a preacher bases the message on another passage, usually from the New Testament, and then utilizes an Old Testament story or a character or an incident from a story to illustrate the lesson being taught. This is valid for New Testament authors frequently utilize Old Testament stories for illustration. For example, Hebrews 11 includes a lengthy list of Old Testament characters whose experiences illustrate what faith in God can accomplish. However... Just because a story can be used to illustrate a principle does not mean that the primary or even secondary intent of the story in its original context is to teach that truth. For example, and this is really interesting, for example, the author of Hebrews includes among his examples of faith Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah in Hebrews 11.32. All four of those people possessed a measure of faith and won great victories over Israel's enemies. They are good examples of the principle the author develops in Hebrews 11. However, is this the same principle that the author of Judges is developing when he mentions them in Judges 4 to 16? No, it's not. The author of Judges traces the decline of Israelite leadership. So starting with the ideal represented by Joshua, Caleb, Othniel and Ehud, He shows how subsequent Israelite leaders lacked the wisdom and faith necessary to carry on this leadership standard. Um, This decline parallels the overall moral decline in Israel and culminates in societal disintegration and chaos. In their original literary context, Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah are prime illustrations of what was wrong with Israel, not paradigms of faith. And so so I guess his point there is like... um, when you come across people or stories from the Old Testament and you know that there's a reference to it in the New Testament, don't necessarily like read that straight into it because they the New Testament authors might not be using it in in the same way that the Old Testament author um, is using it. Um, and he gives another example, and I've heard this in sermons where he talks about the story of um, David and Jonathan. And he says, lots of times preachers will use the story of Jonathan to talk about friendship and to talk about principles around friendship. Is that really the point of the Jonathan story? Um, and he goes, on to, he, he goes on to say, really, when you, when you look at it from a literary standpoint, Jonathan is a clear uh, foil for Saul or, an, or, or kind of a, 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 per, like a character who contrasts with Saul. So, day, uh, so, so Jonathan was in line to receive the benefits of kingship that Saul had, and yet, uh, um, you know, in contrast to Saul, what Jonathan does is he loves God's chosen servant, and is a friend to God's chosen servant, and he's loyal to him, and so, 
um, you know, um, Chisholm kind of says, if you're a preacher and you're wondering how to preach a story, perhaps it's, you know, better instead to talk about friendship, you know, it's potentially better to say, look, the main point here is, um, you know, when when life kind of presents you with, um, you know, material opportunity um, or ambition or, you know, um, I guess, yeah, opportunity, it's far more important to stay loyal to God's plan in history um, as, a, as a basic point. So, look, those are some things that I just thought I'd share just to kind of... that They really kind of hit me hard in terms of taking the Old Testament stories seriously but also enjoying them and, and, and not to let the seriousness get, get in the way of actually thinking, saying, what is the author communicating through these stories that they're writing and, and the narrative techniques and the interesting ways that they're presenting their kind of selected material to um, people. Um, yeah, so that's just a few insights. So um, that's kind of what I want to share today. James, any kind of thoughts off the back of that from you? I think it's really helpful. It's really helpful because what it what it does is it drives us back to say, how did God work through these um, human authors to articulate and to reveal who he is progressively? I think one of the difficulties in reading scripture theologically, which we should, we should always read scripture theologically telling us about God, um, is we can make it flat. We can make the Bible very flat. And so I remember um, being in university and uh, the the leader of the Christian group um, sort of held out a Bible and he goes, everyone, I want you to know something. We don't read the Bible like this. And he holds it horizontally. Mm. He says, you don't read the Bible like this. He says, you need to read the Bible like this and then he tilts it so that one side is down and one side is up and all of us are just going what on earth is happening here what is he doing and his whole point is you the bible isn't just a flat line where Mm. everything that we know about god was already there in genesis or everything Mm. we know about god was already there in leviticus no actually it's a progressive escalating increasing revelation where more and more of who god is is unfolded through the stories, through history, through his actions in Israel. And when we just read the Bible theologically without reading it as literature, we can miss that. We can go, oh, look, Genesis 1. Oh, there's, an, there's a let us make. Clearly, that's the Trinity here. So mm-hmm. that's what we need to, that's what, that's what the author of Genesis was trying to say in Genesis 1, that the Trinity was there already, and we need to do this, 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 this. Now, can you draw that as a conclusion? Yeah, you could, but that's not probably what genesis 1 was trying to communicate yeah yeah and in the same way like you know um or in in a similar way you can say yes the snake represents satan in genesis 3 like that's a theological realization to come to yes um but it doesn't answer some of the narrative questions which open it up a bit more yes why why is he using that you know and what why is the dialogue shaped like it is and why is it kind of formatted like it is um can i just say something about that yeah. Genesis 3 saying that the serpent is, um, you know, the ser- serpent is uh, Satan. Um, sorry, Pip, you're still there? Yeah, I'm, I'm still there. You've cool. frozen on my screen. I've frozen. You've frozen as well. So all good. Let's just keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your face looks very puzzled on my screen. <laughs> so, so here's what I want to say. You know, um, recognizing that the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan if I'm if I'm right, I might be wrong about this, but I think that the time, the only time in the Bible where it explicitly says that it's Satan, is uh, Revelation twelve, um, 
where where the Satan um, is also called that ancient serpent from long ago. Um, mm. Revelation chapter. So you just think about that for a second. That we know we we could say it's Satan. That's true, but that's a theological truth that we've gotten in recognizing the whole of the Bible and 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 trying to bring that knowledge back here. Mm. From a literature perspective, we don't know who this serpent is. This is an intrusion into God's creation. When you're reading Genesis one, two, and three, you know, didn't God make all the creatures? Didn't God make all the all, all the animals on the land? And then you read Genesis three, and all of a sudden, there's this creature that is going against God's plans and purposes. This is an intrusion into the goodness of creation, mm. and it's meant. As as a reader, you're meant to read it and go, there is something fundamentally wrong here. There is something unusual here. This should not be happening, especially given all the goodness that we just saw in the first two chapters. And mm. that's that you get that from reading it as literature. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, and the, and look, there are plenty of other examples as well in the Old Testament where if you only come to it with historical questions, and to an extent theological questions, like if you only ask did this really happen? You know, is this historically accurate? Um, or if you only ask, what does this, you know, what's the kind of proposition about God, the statement about God to take away from the story, then you do kind of miss a lot of it or you or you, you miss a lot of the um, fruits of it mm. if, if you fail to ask the literary questions as well. Yes. And, you know, to be really, like, to be honest, like growing up, reading the Bible, sometimes, like, I only came to it with historical questions. Yes. Did this re- did this really happen? Did the did the flood really happen? Um, you know, did David really kill Goliath? Was that really did that really happen in history? Um, and if if that's all you do, you kind of miss the point of what the author's doing. Yeah, um, that's right. You know. And and you're not saying that, and we're not saying that we stop reading it with a historical lens or a theological lens. No, no, just... no. <laughs> yeah, but I I do think like I do think if you. Um, it's tempting to think if I can prove somehow that this actually happened, then it's obvious what it means. Yeah, yeah. Which is not the case, and it's and it's like okay. So when we read the when we read the Bible, while those questions of historicity are important for our faith, we do need to sometimes put them aside in order to read the text properly and to give it, you know, the time that it's due in terms of those other questions that we can ask. Mm. Or at least put on another lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think you know, um, the Gospels are, great, uh, are a good example of that. Like, you know, Luke's Gospel account, he starts by talking about the eyewitnesses and the historicity of what he's saying, you know. Um, the history of the Gospels is incredibly important. Like, it's incredibly important that Jesus actually did die and rise. You know, that's the, that's the kind of bedrock of our faith. Um but to only ask, did did it happen, and not and to not ask, well, what is Luke actually trying to t- tell us about Jesus in the way that he's writing the story, and in the things that he chooses to include in his account? What is he actually trying to tell us about um, Jesus? Mm. You know, we we make a mistake if we fail to ask those questions as well. Yeah, nice, uh, really, really helpful. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this topic? No, no, just just you know. Enjoy the Old Testament, you know. I, I think I'm, you know, learning more and more that the Old Testament, when we when we start to read it this way, is actually far more interesting than if we only come with the historical questions. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Thanks, Pip. Really, really helpful. 
All good. All good. Now, are we playing um, guess who or guess which? What's yes. The... So, listeners, we're we're gonna do we're gonna mix it up a bit now. So, you know, guess who will always be a staple of the Bible Boys podcast, but maybe not every week. We'll hmm. play some variations of these games. So today we're going to introduce a new one. It's going to be called not guess who. It's going to be called guess which. And in okay. particular, it's guess which book of the Bible I'm thinking about. Okay. So it's a work in a similar manner. Uh, you know, yes or no questions. But instead of 20, we're going to get 10. 10 okay, questions. Yep. Um, and one of them has to be a guess. And mm. you have to get to the book of the Bible that the other person is thinking about. So this week, Pip, you're going to be guessing. I've got a book of the Bible in mind. How do you feel about this as a variation, by the way? I like it. I do like it. I'm just interested to see how it'll go. Ten questions is not as many as 20, if my maths is correct. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll give it a go. Okay, one of, so One of the interesting things about this as well is that we're going to have to work out a new set of questions and, yes. and you know, how to how to come to the, the, this this book of the Bible. So, anyway, mm. I've got a book of the Bible in mind. Uh, we'll see how we go. Ten questions. Listeners, you can play from home. Pip, are you ready to start questioning? I'm ready. Let's go. Um, first question. Is this book a New Testament book? No. Ooh, okay. Is this book um, one of the prophetic books, major or minor? No. Ooh, is this... Uh, how many questions is that? Is two, this book <laughs> is this book um, part of? Uh, or yeah, does this book come before the wisdom literature starts? Does this book come before the wisdom literature yeah, starts? So is it part of any of the history? Um, I guess the the Torah plus the you know history up to. Um, uh, Job, is it? is it? So I'm going to say no. Okay. Okay. All right. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. He's done three questions, listeners. Let He's got seven more to go. Let me think. Um, is this book... Um... Hmm, does this book contain... Ooh, that could be interesting. Um, okay, okay. So is this book part of the wisdom literature? The five books of wisdom are traditionally associated with wisdom. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Yes. Okay, boil it down. <laughs> um, has this book been ascribed to um is this book an anth- a, a, a collection of songs no hmm is this book a collection of wise sayings yes hmm okay i guess all the bible is a collection of wise sayings when you really boil it down um Okay, so I'm going to say it's either Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Um, hmm. Hmm. Does this book... Um, 
in its 31st chapter talk about the noble woman? Yes. Is this Proverbs? Yes. Yes. There you go. You got it. And eight guesses. uh, Eight questions. So good job, Pip. Good first round of Guess Which. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I will say I think maybe it's easier than Guess Who. (laughs) <laughs> because there's 66 books and they're in like very distinct categories. Yes. Um, yes, but I do like it. I really like it. Maybe we should do less than 10 questions. Maybe we should do seven questions because it's... Okay. Uh, what, what do you reckon? I'm, ju- I'm just throwing it out there to make it a bit harder. Yeah, yep, seven questions sounds good. That's a godly number. God's number. There you go. Yep. Seven questions. There you go. Well... I think that'll just about do it for us this week, Pip. Hopefully next week we can record in person and we'll do it mm. in another one of the more college rooms. Remember mm. our goal to record in every single more college room? Yes. At first I thought that'd be easy to achieve, but now, you know, it's like, okay, the weeks are going by. We'll see if we make it. Mm. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, it doesn't have to just be this year, right? I mean, presumably we can keep doing it next year. That's true. The, the ultimate goal would be to record during a lecture. <laughs> Hey, no, here's another one. (laughs) One of the goals is to record in the lecturer's offices. Mm, Yeah, in the principal's office. (laughs) We should ask Mark Thompson sometime, can we record a podcast in your office? You know what? We should invite him on this podcast. Yes. Oh, that'd be so good, wouldn't it be? Um, Yeah, look, I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Thompson, what have you been learning at college recently? (laughs) Mark Thompson, would you like to play Guess Who? And we're playing hard mode right now. Uh, Can you imagine? Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it'd be so good. Anyway, well, I think that's going to about do it for us this week. Term 2 starts. That'll be great. I'm looking forward to it. How are you feeling about Term 2? I'm feeling really good about Term 2. I'm ready. I'm looking forward to it. I'm buzzed. That's it. Why don't you sign us out, Pip? Uh, Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope you found it entertaining, edifying. I hope you have a great week. Get into your Bibles, and we'll see you next time. Bye.